back out this evening, afternoon, whatever. Uh, hope you've enjoyed your day. Fathers, happy Father's Day if I didn't get a chance to tell you earlier. And I hope you've enjoyed your day. Tonight we're going to look at a passage, you can tell from the outline, John chapter 9 and verse 31. A commonly referenced passage, um, God does not hear sinners. God heareth not sinners, depending on your translation. And I want to talk a little bit about this, and especially the question that has to do with it, and just simply asking, is that really the case, that God does not or will not hear sinners? So I want us to deal with this, and we're going to look at it, we're going to really look at John 9 and spend the bulk of our time in that passage. But before we get there, um, I'd like to start with, with basically just a couple of observations. And first of all, that God favors the righteous, I think, is unquestioned. In fact, we might go so far as to say Scripture would show us that God gives preferential treatment toward the righteous. He prefers people to be righteous. He blesses them if they are righteous, etc., etc., You will find statements, and there are many, like this, but I chose a couple from Matthew and Jesus in the parables in Matthew 13 and verse 43, singling out the righteous, when he says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. You'll notice that that's an idea of talking about them being singled out from the viewpoint of God. Again, and I won't turn over and read it, but in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, when Jesus Uh, As Jesus tells that uh, story there, prophesies of his return someday, and talks about dividing all people as though they were sheep from goats. He will say to those on the right, who in verse 46 are classified as the righteous, he will say to them, come, you know, into the joys of my Father, enter into life eternal. You are the ones who've done what's right. So there's no question that God favors the righteous. I think there is also little question, if you'll turn over to 1 Peter 3, that when it comes to prayer, that just like a father, uh, it's this Father's Day, fathers with their children, or we might look at it from the standpoint of the children of the father, that children have the ear of their father um, over anyone else. If, uh, If your child comes to you, if your child needs you, Regardless of what may be going on in life, if it is, you know, real need, etc., you're going to, as it were, drop everything, even risk your own life, to give your life for your child. That's natural. It is a natural feeling. There's even a specialized term in the original language for that feeling that exists between parent and child. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Quoting from Psalm 34, and you could easily go back in Psalm 34 and see this at length there in this section of David's psalm. But notice as he quotes here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. You may even have a translation that indicates they are watchful, that God is watchful over the righteous in a special fashion. His ears, likewise, are open, the King James says in italics, but his ears attend to their prayers. And so here is the idea of God promising that he will watch, he will regard, he will be listening, he will keep an eye out, as we might say, especially down south, or keep an ear out for the righteous. Um, Maybe one other passage in James chapter 5 and verse 16, confess your faults one to another one. 
But remember, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, we might even cite numerous other examples, etc., like Daniel, when you prayed, as you began to pray, Gabriel told him, I was told to come to you and come to you quickly because, God, you are greatly beloved. You are a righteous individual. So we could look at, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about all the passages that single out the righteous. God favors the righteous. And yet, when we look at this passage in John 9, does that mean, in other words, I'm saying that I believe the Bible singles out the righteous and that God favors the righteous, and even with regard to prayer, that there is preferential treatment of the righteous, does that mean that the other extreme, and maybe even beyond that, is the case, and that if you are not righteous, and we'll talk about what that means, but if you are not, if you are in fact a sinner, then God will not hear you. Is that what it means when you pray? And I hear this quoted, I hear it quoted quite a bit, and so people will sometimes ask, is that really the case? that if you're a sinner, God won't hear you because there are conclusions you draw from that. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, somebody down the street, that there's no situation in which they, having no clue of what's right and wrong, they call out to God, they cry out to God, and God basically says, nope, can't hear you, won't hear you, you're not a Christian. Does it mean that sometimes Christians themselves even get confused? And they will say to themselves, I know I've sinned, and so I'm a sinner. Does that mean God won't hear me, he won't listen to me? And people get the idea that God, you know, and I, I even hear people say in the extremes, God has, quote, unquote, turned his back on me because I'm a sinner. So I want to talk about that. I want to address that idea. And if we look at John 9, I want you to look with me at the end of John 8 to set this up. And I won't spend much time there. But you'll notice that Jesus was in a very heated discussion with the Pharisees. Um, I quoted part of this, you remember, in the last lesson and the idea that um, they were of their father, the devil, and all of that. So it's a very heated discussion. They are accusing him of not only being just a false rabbi or prophet, but that he's illegitimate in, you know, even uh, illegitimate as far as his birth is concerned. So it, it turned ugly, as we would say today, this discussion. And it got to a point where they were claiming we're Abraham's children, Abraham's seed, and Jesus said, you know, I knew Abraham. <laughs> kind of like uh, the old debate years ago, many of you remember. But I knew Abraham. And Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And I think he refers directly back to Genesis 18. But I knew Abraham. And if you were of your father Abraham, you'd do the deeds of Abraham because he was right. He was righteous. And they say, you're not even 50 years old. How could you know Abraham 2,000 years ago? And so Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am they regarded that as blasphemy that he was claiming, and they're right, he is claiming to be deity. And if you'll notice at the end of John 8, the Bible says in verse 59, the very last verse, they took up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and going through the midst of them and so passed by. We would say basically he just slipped through the crowd and he got lost in the crowd. But if you'll notice, chapter 9 picks up in that very incident. We're still talking about the exact same time here. And as Jesus passed by, verse 1, 
he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples then began to ask him. There was a common belief, and I think that belief even still exists today. Someone is born with a bad birth defect and, you know, almost, uh, almost without exception. Someone will at least question, you know, why did God do this? Is it punishment? And sometimes a person will look at their own sins and say, God is punishing me for my child being, you know, sick or something like that. Sometimes the person will look at the individual even and claim that there's something with the individual that is wrong, etc. So the disciples question the same thing. Master, who sinned? Was it his parents? Was it him who sinned so that he was born blind? And you'll notice in verse 3, Jesus said it was neither, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And verse 6, when he had spoken that, when he had said that, he spat on the ground. He basically made a clay patty, so to speak, mud patty. He put it on the man's eyes and he said, go wash. And he told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man, in verse 7, went his way, therefore, and washed and came see. Now, that's the scenario. So, Jesus, in a heated discussion at length, we can see all of this going on in John 7 and 8 with the Pharisees, with the Jews, slipping through the crowd, so to speak, and comes by a man who's been born blind. He's an adult male, not a young man even, but an adult male, and he's been blind from birth. And there's all this question about why he's blind. Is it because of sin? And Jesus basically says, no What it is, is an opportunity to show who I am and what I am. I'm the light of the world, and what he's really saying is, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ who has come, and I'm about to do this miracle to show that. And that really becomes, if you look at John 9, that very idea becomes the point of contention, and I'm going to try to point that out as we go through John 9. But that becomes the entire point of contention throughout John 9. So if you notice, he goes on, I mean, he does heal the man, and the man can see, and the reaction begins to come. If you look at verse 8, the neighbors, therefore, and those who before had seen him, that he was blind, no question about it, said, isn't this the one that, you know, basically sat and begged because he was blind? Some said, yeah, that's him, verse 9. And others said, well, you know, basically thinking, no, that can't be him, so it's got to be somebody that looks like him. And uh, so... He said, verse 9, that is the man upon whom the miracle had been done, he said, I'm him. You know, I'm the guy. I was born blind, I can see. And so they said to him immediately, verse 10, just like you would or I would, how were your eyes open? How is it that all of a sudden you can see? He answered and said, verse 11, something he will say several times here, a very simple explanation. He said, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam, and wash. And I went and washed, and I received my sight. And they said, Well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. You know, he just did this. He told me to go wash. I didn't hang around. I went and washed. I don't know where he is right now. So they bring the man to the Pharisees. Notice that in verse 13. They bring the man to the Pharisees, the one that before had been blind. And verse 14, here's the rub. Here's the problem. It's the Sabbath day. 
It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And you should understand that not by God's rules, but by the Pharisees' rules, by the interpretation that's now been codified. It's the rabbinic tradition now. To make anything like clay, even something that small, would be considered work. And so he has now, in their estimation, violated the Sabbath day by doing that. So he that made, Jesus made the clay opened his eyes. So the Pharisees then asked him again, how did you receive your sight? And you can almost hear it in their voice. He said unto them, very simply, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, and I do see. The Pharisees then, some of them said, verse 16, this man is not of God because he does not keep the Sabbath day. I think they refer to Jesus there. Some think they re- that he refers to the, the man that allowed it, but I think he's talking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. But nonetheless, this man is not of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. But others said, wait a minute. If the guy can see, and, and you have to read a little bit between the lines here, but notice their reasoning. If the guy can see, that's a miracle. And if it's a miracle, others are saying, how can a man that is, and you'll notice the phrase, a sinner... God heareth not sinners. God does not hear sinners. How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And so there was a division. And that's where you begin to understand what's going on, the contention that's going on. There's been a miracle performed. Obviously so. Jesus has performed a miracle. In performing a miracle, there's a reason for performing a miracle. We'll mention that in just a moment. But there's a reason for it. And so some are saying if he's a sinner, he can't call on God for power to do a miracle. But others are saying, no, he broke the Sabbath day, and that's all they can see. He broke the Sabbath day, he broke what we consider to be the law of God, and so if he did, he's a sinner. And so they're divided, naturally so. So they say to the man that's born blind, verse 17, and they said to him again, what do you say of him? That he that has opened your eyes. And this is what he concludes. He is a prophet. Now I want you to stop and notice that for a moment. If you go back in the story, how did the story transpire? Jesus comes by a man that is born blind. The disciples ask a question, why is he born blind? Jesus gives the reason. He was born blind to provide an opportunity. And that opportunity is an amazing thing that's about to happen here. And Jesus doesn't preach to him. Jesus doesn't prophesy. Jesus doesn't predict the end of the temple or some great prophecy like that. Jesus just simply makes the clay. He doesn't even say anything. He just makes the clay, mud patty or whatever we would, we would look at it, and puts it on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The guy goes and washes. A miracle takes place. He can see. What do you say of him? I say he is a prophet. Why? Because he said something that came true. Well, no. Because he did something that was miraculous. The man understands the purpose of a miracle. The purpose of a miracle is to confirm the word. I want you to look with me at a couple of passages. We'll come right back to this. Look back with me, if you will, at 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17, you may remember there was a famine going on in the land. This is the time of Elijah. Remember, Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for several years there. 
Well, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah is told to go to a widow's house. And he goes there, and the widow is about to starve to death. And Elijah tells her, God tells Elijah to tell her, to feed him what she has. If you look back in verse 14, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but if you look back in that, Elijah is telling her, verse 13, don't fear, do as I've said, make a little cake. And so basically she agrees to make a little loaf of bread or a little cake of barley and give him what she's got. And as long as she did that, in other words, she had a little bit of meal left, a little bit of oil left, but every time she would go and make the barley cakes, there would be more there. Miraculously so. And if you'll notice as it goes on, if you'll drop down to verse 24, uh, in fact, even the child, the son of the woman, even dies, and Elijah raises the child from the dead. So there are two miracles that take place here. And you can see that in verse 23, when he raises the child from the dead. And then the woman said, verse 24, Now by this, that is, by the miracle, I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What's the purpose of a miracle? The purpose of a miracle is to confirm an individual that he speaks, or she, as the case might be, speaks for God. That's the purpose of a miracle. Let's see it again in the book of John. Go with me to John 3. Remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night? He was one of the council. And he comes to Jesus, and here's what Nicodemus says to him. Look at verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do we know that? How do we know that you speak for God is the idea. For no man can do those miracles that you do except God be with him. Miracles are to confirm the individual speaking the word of God. One final passage. Look back at Mark chapter 16. When the apostles were sent out, they were given power to do all manner of, of miracles. And in Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, Mark kind of concludes the book by saying of the apostles, they went forth, verse 20, after Jesus commissioned them, and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word, in other words, that they, they spoke, with signs. And if you go back to verse 17, you can see that these signs, and, and 18, these signs are miraculous signs. Now, what, why am I saying all of that? Because the point of contention in John 9 is, is Jesus a sinner? The Pharisees say yes. He broke the Sabbath. The man upon whom the miracle was done says no. But he goes further. It's not just that he's not a sinner. It is that he is a prophet. How do you know? Because he did a miracle. A real miracle. The man is basically standing there. They're saying, what do you say of yourself? And here's what he's saying. I'll tell you what I know. And that's all I can tell you. This is what I know. I was blind. And I know more than anyone in here, better than anyone in here, that I was really blind. And I know the man put that on my eyes and said, go wash. And when I did, I could see. So I know it was a miracle. Therefore, I conclude he's a prophet. All right, let's go back to our story in John 9. So in John 9, he says, at the end of verse 17, he's a prophet. But verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that had been blind. 
and received his sight. And so they called his parents. And they say in verse 19, is this your son? First of all, is this your son who you say was born blind? Now that's, that's bordering on ridiculous. Because if you notice in the passage earlier, remember how people, the moment they saw that he could see, said, hey, isn't this the dude that sat and begged? He would have been out there every day, as would be the custom to do. Everybody would have passed by. Everybody would have known for years whom you say was born blind. His parents are afraid, verse 20, and so this is how they choose to answer They said, we know that this is our son, and we know he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. They kind of get off the hook there. And so verse 22, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already, notice that, Everybody knows who Jesus is here and what Jesus is claiming. They'd all agreed that if anybody confessed that Jesus, notice, was the Christ, the Messiah, he'd be thrown out of the synagogue. And so his parents, being afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue, said, he's of age, ask him. Verse 24, they again called the man that was born blind. And you notice how the story keeps reiterating that. Dude was really blind. No question of this being a miracle. They said unto the man, give God the praise. We know this man is a sinner. And I'll do a little side note here, a little sidebar, so to speak. This is very much like Pete, and we all see that. When someone has a position they're unwilling to give up, especially when they have a religious position they're unwilling to give up, it really doesn't matter what you say. It really doesn't matter what you do. People are very prejudiced, biased when it comes to religion. Extremely so. I'm not telling you anything we don't all know. But if you have someone who's honest and open to the truth, they're going to be just like this man here. Miracle was done on this man, and his eyes were opened. But I want to suggest to you, his eyes were already open spiritually. So was his heart. When a real miracle happens, the dude is not thinking about anything other than the truth says, if a miracle is done, this is a prophet, you better listen to it. But no, these Pharisees are like, we don't believe in him. So it really doesn't matter what he says, and it surely doesn't matter what he does. They'd already agreed if he said, if anybody agreed he was the Christ, because he was saying, if anybody agrees to that, we're going to throw him out of the synagogue. So they call the man and they say, give God the praise. We know this man is a sinner. Now notice verse 25. I love this guy's response here. Verse 25, he answered and he says, whether he's a sinner or not. Notice how the term, the sinner, is used over and over here. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. So... Isn't that the point? He's like, if you're asking me, you know, you ask me who the guy was. I don't know the guy. And I take it that he had never met him or being blind and basically being separated all the time. Who knows? But for whatever reason, he doesn't know the guy. They do. They know Jesus. 
And they've already agreed, if, G- if anybody agrees to what Jesus is saying of himself, we'll throw him out of the synagogue. But the man doesn't know it. And so the guy says, I can't tell you. You want to ask me if he's a sinner, if you want to ask me if he's done something wrong, you know, anytime, ever, whatever, I can't tell you that. But I'll tell you what I can tell you. He opened my eyes. He did a miracle. So what, it's as much as if he's saying, so man, what does that say to you? If he can call on God and do a miracle, what does that say? Notice how the Pharisees react to this. They say, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? You can see the guy almost getting exasperated here. How many times do I have to say this? He said, I've told you already. And you would not, you did not hear. And wherefore, or why should you hear it again? It's like when you reach a point and you see the reaction out of people. Wes, I'm, I'm thinking of that discussion we had about the dude that gave us the weird definition of college and all of that. When you get in a situation like that, if somebody just, you tell somebody, you explain, you give an answer to someone, and they come back with ridiculous responses, it's time to go. They're not going to hear it. So the guy is saying to them, if I tell you, would you hear it again? Would you really listen this time? Would you be honest this five minutes when you weren't the last five minutes? And so notice their response or their reaction. He says, will you be his disciples? Will you believe? Will you follow him? And so they reviled him. When someone begins to resort to, as that time with Wes and I, he remembers that well. When people begin to resort to mocking you because they cannot answer you. And it's not you they can't answer, it's the word of God they can't answer. There's no point. And so they reviled him. And they said, you're his disciple. You're his follower. I don't know if you've ever had that said to you. But when I've agreed to the position that someone else has, and I've been in a discussion with someone, maybe you have too at times, been accused of being someone's quote-unquote little follower, it, it's, it's, it's beyond mocking. It really is total disrespect. That's what they're saying here. You're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Notice that. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. Notice what they're saying. We believe in Moses. We believe God spoke through Moses. But this guy, we don't know where he came from. You know, the man reacts to that, and here's what he said. Why, herein is a marvelous thing. You know, the question is, why do you believe in Moses? Why do you believe Moses said the truth? What did Moses ever do that shows you that he spoke for God? And I'll tell you what he did. He did miracles. He did miracles like... You know, lice and frogs and dividing the Red Sea and water coming from a rock. And there's no question, those are real miracles. I was blind, the man says. And I can see. That's a miracle. That's a marvelous thing that you don't know where he comes from. You claim you know where Moses came from, but you don't know where this man came from. And yet he opened my eyes. Now this is when he says... Verse 31. And you'll notice it has nothing to do with prayer here. This has to do with a prophet calling upon God to confirm 
the word he's preaching. The man says in verse 31, now we know that God does not hear sinners. In other words, if a person is a sinner, they were saying Jesus was a sinner. Why? Because of what he said and what he did. What did he say, first of all? Well, what he said, first and foremost, was that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And they did not accept him as the Messiah. But he didn't just say it. He wouldn't be like Michael White going out here and saying, Hey, I'm the Son of God. I came from heaven. I'm the Messiah. Follow me. i got nothing to back that up. But he did. He backed it up again and again and again and again, and including this time when he performs a miracle on someone who was born blind. He is not a sinner because of what he says. He says he is the Christ. He proves he is the Christ. Oh, but the Pharisees would say, what about what he did? Well, what did he do? He healed the man on the Sabbath day. It's not the first time He's done something on the Sabbath day, and it won't be the last. And it won't be the first or the last time when the Pharisees will say you're a sinner because of what you do, but then Jesus will perform a miracle to show that his action is not wrong, but is in fact right. Case in point, right here. If he's violating the Sabbath day, if he is a practicing sinner... God will not hear him and confirm what he's saying. Because God would not want you to follow him in violating the Sabbath. A marvelous thing, the man says. He does a miracle, but you don't know where he comes from. We know God does not hear sinners. God does not confirm sinners. God does not back up what they say or do. God doesn't do that. But if any man be a worshiper of God... And does his will, him he hears. Now what happens is people take this verse and lift it out of context and say, if a person that's a, is a sinner and they pray, God won't hear them. Other people listen to that and say, well, what does that mean? Because if you mean, let's say there's a guy down the street and he's never heard of the truth. He doesn't know what the truth is, but he knows as he looks around him, he, he knows he has not seen it yet. And he begins to read in his Bible, and maybe he's never met a group of people that even followed the truth. But he begins to pray to God. God, help me to find the truth. God, help me to realize what you want me to do. God, bring me to someone who can teach me the truth. Now, do you think God will hear him or not? There are some people who would say, no, you're not a Christian. He's a sinner. I want to suggest to you, if you hold your finger at John 9 and go over to Acts 10... That in Acts 10, that's exactly what we're talking about. In Acts 10, we're talking about Cornelius. We're talking about a Gentile who was not a Christian. Obviously so. I mean, Acts 10 and 11 show that clearly. But he was a person who was trying to do what was right. And he was praying to God. And let's just read the first couple of verses. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian. He was a devout man, and he was one that feared God with all his house. And he gave much alms or charity to the people, and he prayed to God always. Now, there are a lot of people who say, that's a Christian. But no, he wasn't a Christian. Later in the chapter, we will see him telling Peter that God told him to call for Peter, and for Peter to tell him everything he needed to do, 
and for Peter to say, here's what you need to do to be saved. So he wasn't saved. But he was very devout. And he's praying. Now, I don't know what he was saying, but I can imagine that to some degree he was praying to God about being right with God and doing what he was supposed to do. Because here's what happened. He saw a vision about the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, verse three. And an angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid. And he said, what is it, Lord? Or what is it, sir? And he said unto him, your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. In other words, you prayed, God heard, and God answered. So when a person says, God hears not sinners, and that means if you're not a faithful Christian, God doesn't hear a thing you say. I don't see that. And if it's so, then how do we explain Cornelius? But there's another side of it. Sometimes Christians, and this has happened many times over the years, where someone has come to me and said, Michael, I've sinned, and it's, you know, it's bad, really bad sins. And I know that God has turned his back on me. But there's no point in even praying to God. And I will say to them the same thing you probably would say, you need to repent, you need to ask God forgiveness. No, I can't pray. Because God won't listen to me. He won't hear somebody like me. And I've even had a time or two someone quote John 9. Because God doesn't listen to sinners. And I said, if that's the case, if that's the case, then how do we explain 1 John 1? Now let's go over to 1 John 1 for a second. Because here's the righteous. And here's what's true of the righteous. And John was an old man here. And he's including himself in this. And what John is saying in 1 John 1 is... Verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, Christians, from all sins. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, well, if I say I have no sin and I'm deceiving myself, and the truth is not in me, then it means I have sins. And what does that make me if not a sinner? But verse 9, if we are confessing our sins, so can a Christian who has become a sinner Confess his sins to God, pray to God, and God forgive it. Obviously so. So we go back to John 9 and we say, then what does the man mean? We know God heareth not sinners. Because nowhere in here does John the Apostle interject a note or Jesus correct this. Or is it corrected anywhere else? And so what does he mean? Well, the context shows you. He's talking about a prophet here. He's talking about someone who's either speaking or doing what's false, and God would not hear him for confirmation, and God certainly would not do a miracle to back it up. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you should know where he comes from. Because he said what he said, he did what he did, and he backed it up with a miracle. The point being in this passage, that when we're talking about a sinner here, we're talking about... A prophet, not just anyone who sins. So, general prayer is not even under consideration in John 9. That's not what we're talking about. The point of contention is, is the man a prophet or is he a sinner? Is he telling and doing the truth or is he not? Let's go on and notice here. The man who had earlier in the passage, remember back in verse 17, concluded he is a prophet. Well, they go on. And they throw the guy out. I mean, they meant what they said. You buy into him being, Jesus being the Christ, 
and we throw you out. And so they did. Verse 34, you were altogether born in sin, and do you now teach us? They threw him out. Well, Jesus heard that he was thrown out. Verse 35, he went and found him. And he said unto him, do you believe in the Son of God? And notice that. That's the first thing that Jesus, besides go wash, okay? But doctrinally speaking, that's the first thing Jesus has said to him. He already knows he's a prophet by the miracle that's been performed. This is the first doctrinal thing Jesus says. Do you believe in the Son of God? Notice the man. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in? I already know that whatever you say is the truth. God has already proven that by you. You just tell me who it is and I will believe. I'll believe he's the Son of God. Jesus says, you've both seen him. Notice that, because you can see now. I love that. You've both seen him, and it's the one that's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. And that's the way we're supposed to be. That's the way anyone was supposed to be. When we seek confirmation. Now, are we going to see a miracle today? No. But if I sit down with someone and we open the Bible, if I say to somebody, what do I need to do to be a Christian? Somebody says, okay, let's look at a couple of verses. And we read those verses that, you know, just so easy. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, those are not hard to understand. Baptism does also now save us, 1 Peter 3.21. When I see that as confirmation, I'm not any longer taking simply and only a man's word for something. The confirmation is in the word of God. Just like the confirmation was in the word of God of a prophet when he did a miracle. So the man says, who is he? And Jesus said, it's me. Then I believe in you. It's as simple as that. So, that brings us to the final question. I've really answered it, but let me reiterate. So, does God hear a sinner's prayer? Well, it depends on what kind of sinner we're talking about. If we're talking about a false prophet who's preaching something that's false and is calling on God for confirmation, will God hear that person? No, he will not. He will not confirm that word. If we're talking about an individual like a Cornelius that is not a Christian, but is a sincere individual and really wants to know the truth, who is, like James led the song, seek ye first, asking, seeking, knocking, wanting to be answered. God, please show me the way. Show me the truth. I don't want to just do what you know my family's always done. I don't want to just do what everybody else does. I don't want to just go anywhere and say anything and everything's okay. I want to know what you say to do. Please show me the way. Well, God answered that. He did for Cornelius. He's promised it generally. Jesus has in passages like, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. So why would God not hear such an individual? If we're talking about a Christian who maybe has even not just committed a sin, as we sometimes say, but even lived in sin for a while, been a sinner, done wrong for a considerable amount of time, but whose heart has never been cold to God. Always the conscience has bothered them. Maybe even when other people around them thought that person's beyond help, they still knew. And that person, in alone somewhere one night, 
begins to think about his soul or her soul and begins to call out to God for help, will God hear them? Or has he truly turned his back on them? The Bible teaches us if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just, right, to forgive us our sins. No, God will hear them. So who is it that God will not hear? Well, the Bible is clear. And there are many, many verses. And I don't have time tonight to go into all of these verses. But I like for you, and those of you in the Wendy's class, we saw this just the other night. I want to go back to Proverbs 28 and look at something. If I can remember where Proverbs is. But Proverbs 28, and we see a number of passages. Job 27, Psalm 66, a number of passages like this. But this one is about as clear as it gets. Look at Proverbs 28 and go down with me to about verse 9. When the writer says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Disgusting. Now, why would that be? So a person says, you're telling me that if I've been living in sin, I mean, let's think of the worst sins there are as we calculate and think of them. You're telling me, though, if my conscience is bothering me and I decide sometime at some point I want to turn that around and I cry out to God, God is going to hear me? I'm saying yes. But you're telling me, on the other hand, if I'm going to God and I don't hear His law, I'm not listening to His law, that God will look at me and be disgusted with me. That's exactly what I'm saying. And here's why. Because the person that's been sinning for the last seven years, and it's been horrible, awful, I mean, just terrible, a way of life, but whose heart is killing them. Their conscience is tearing them up. They can't stand it any longer. And they begin to beg God for forgiveness. That individual is exactly what God wants. That is a penitent individual. But the person who knows God's law and here's what he's saying. He won't hear it. It's not that he doesn't understand it here. He's just basically saying, I don't care. I know God says. How many times have you been with someone or heard someone make a statement like this? I know God says so and so, but I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. But yet that same individual goes home tonight and bows down beside their bed. And as much as it says... God, I know you said so and so, but I'm not doing that yet. Please forgive me of my sins. That's disgusting. That's someone saying to God, I don't respect you, I don't honor you, I don't love you, but I want to be forgiven and saved by you. God says, no. I won't do that. I won't forgive such a person. I won't even hear such a person. But we're not talking about that with Cornelius. And we're not talking about that with the prodigal son and people like that. So does God hear sinners? And though this may sound like a cop-out, I hope I've said enough so that you understand what I mean by this. It depends on what kind of sinner we're talking about. It really depends on what's in the heart of an individual. God will or will not hear us. You're here tonight and you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're willing tonight to confess your belief in Him. You're willing to repent, be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, the Lord will save you. And you know, you might be here, and you might be one of those individuals 
who looks at himself or herself and says, I haven't been right with God, but I want to be. And I'm asking the Lord to forgive me, and I'd love for you to pray for me, and give me the encouragement I need to do what's right. The Lord will hear you. Won't you please come? Watch Jane please.